basically the divergency is the fact that the brain is different. And so we seem as society to focus on neurodivergency not being the normal. Right. So we say there's neurotypicals and neurodivergence. Okay. And the world has been designed based around a quote-unquote neurotypical brain. Welcome to the Real Leadership Podcast. My name is Chris Obst. I've spent the last 25 years going deep with leaders on the real challenges they face, the stuff that keeps them up at night. Are you ready for raw and honest conversations and the reality that self-leadership and personal growth are the keys to you being the leader that you were meant to be? So usually when I start um, these podcasts and I have a guest on, we both try and recollect, when did we meet? (laughs) How long have we known each other? Um... In this case, I know the exact date that we met. Um, (laughs) In fact, I may have been, I probably was the first face that you saw. 27 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, are you nervous? I guess, yeah. A little bit. Well, I probably would be. Uh, So my guest today is uh, Frederic Obst. And if the last name sounds familiar, it's because... uh, we're related, and um, Freddie's my daughter, and uh, so this is something new uh, that I'm pretty certain I never had planned uh, two years ago when we decided to do a podcast. How about you? No, no. I definitely didn't have this on my to-do list. Okay, so out of left field kind of for both of us, and uh, over the last couple of days talking about it, when there's not a microphone in front of us, we went on and on and on and on. And there's, we both have a lot of passion around this topic. So mm-hmm. maybe what I'll do, Freddie, is I'll, I'll tee up what we're going to be talking about. And uh, you and I will just jump in and go wherever it goes. Sounds good. How's that sound? Good? Yep. Works okay. for me. All right. So uh, why are you on the Real Leadership Podcast? So something came to my attention Uh, And you played a big role in this. A number of years ago, I was doing a lot of um, speaking engagements. And I'm sure we'll touch on this, but, you know, somewhere in your early teens, uh, the whole concept of mental health entered our world, Mm -hmm. right? And I remember doing a presentation for a group, and I made reference to what I was learning and all that I didn't know about mental health because I had a teenage daughter that was wrestling with it. Right. And it was just, it was like a simple statement like that. And then at the break, this woman came up to me and she was waiting to speak to me. Like often people do, they don't want to ask questions in front of everyone. So they wait till a break or after the session, they come to the speaker and say, you know, they ask you things or tell you things. And this woman, I could see she was, she was really looking forward to connecting, but there was some anxiety and and she was fighting back the tears. She said, Chris, I, I got to thank you for bringing that up. And I said, well, bring what up? This whole thing about mental health. And she went on to tell me about her son who's at first year university and he's got so much anxiety and depression and she worries about him and nobody's talking about it and she's afraid to tell her friends. And it was like this big release and it, and it you know, became evident to me that there's a lot of folks out there in the workplace and in homes that are wrestling with mental health. Now this, Freddie, this was over 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and so you and I have learned a lot and we continue to learn a lot. And I just thought, you know, I, you've you've so impressed me with, you know, someone at your stage of life, how you've dug into it. You've taken ownership um, of your own mental well-being. And I'm realizing 
every client that I work with now, this topic of mental well-being or mental health comes up. There isn't a person I know that their family isn't somehow touched by it. So that's why you're here. (laughs) I know you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Um, We both have experience in, in therapy and counseling. So we've got some of the buzzwords and some of the language. My intention today was threefold. And you asked me a great question before. You said, well, what, what are we trying to do? Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? So one is, I think, to just continue normalizing conversation about mental well-being right. okay, in the workplace and beyond. The other one is that, and you and I have firsthand experience in this, is like when you have, so, so that we're going to talk about neurodivergency, like a neurodivergent brain, which basically means a brain that's, and maybe I'll get your definition in a second, but someone whose brain is, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, normal, <laughs> um, you don't understand what other people's brains, how they differ and how those differences manifest. And so I wanted to bring to light, A, that there's these differences in how people's brains are wired and how they work, what it feels like when you're working with someone who has a neurodivergent brain, um, some of the frustrations, some of the things you notice. And then if you could offer the perspective, okay, well, here's what it feels like when you're the one, you're the neurodivergent one and here's what it feels like. And then maybe we could talk about what can we do about it? Like what does better look like? Mm-hmm. So that's the context of, of why I thought, I mean, A, I, I just respect you so much and what you've been doing mm-hmm. around this. And Thank I, you. I wanted to, I just think it's a great place for us to have a conversation. So why did you immediately say yes to this? Cause you didn't, you didn't hesitate. I, I kind of, you know, we weren't planning this for months, but when I asked you, you were like, absolutely. So what, why was that? Well, in my recent, uh, I guess, unpacking of my mental health journey, I'm realizing how much more this whole neurodivergent topic affects everybody you know, and way more people will actually identify with it, with being neurodivergent, than anyone would have assumed prior. And... I've learned so much that I just, I feel like I have to share it because I didn't have that available or accessible to me at a younger age. And there's so much information out there and it isn't one size fits all. And it's a scale. Everybody has their own wiring and their own level of neurodivergency. It just Mm -hmm. means everyone's brain is different, regardless of how severe any uh, symptom or problem seems to be everybody has a different brain and so to understand that nothing is so black and white and that Mm. everything's a scale and it's it all plays into anxiety and depression and those are just sub symptoms of bigger issues most most often so Hmm. yeah i have a lot of passion about it clearly well i'm really proud of you by the way for being here thank you (laughs) um so what something this reminds me of, and I said this to you just before we, um, we started recording here, you know, over the last number of years, I've done work around diversity and inclusiveness in the workplace. And one of the goals was not to, you know, shame people or guilt people about the behavior, about their unconscious bias, was, was just to bring awareness that you have, a, we all have bias. And as you were explaining this to me, I started thinking, well, it's kind of that way. Like I have a brain that works one way. So I have a bias that, well, of course, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. 
why wouldn't everybody kind of work the same? I know we're different. I mean, look at the space I work in. But but as I'm starting to unpack and understand this more, it's like, wow, oh, no, there's this whole different way that, that some people operate. And it's not really a choice. Not it, at all. <laughs> and, and so it's kind of on me to learn about that. And, and and I think one of the dynamics here that I think we're going to talk about, so you're 27, right? right? I consider you to be fortunate that well under 30, you're already on this. You're tapping into it. You're understanding it. You're moving through it and growing with it. I have clients that are 40 and 50 that have the same symptoms, but they haven't even started to tap into it and understand it. Mm -hmm. And I know you've got some thoughts around that. So how does... (laughs) How did that happen if we think about it? And I know there's some generational stuff, but how did the 40 and 50 and 60 year olds that are in the workplace and in families now, who, who arguably have the same or similar wiring to maybe what you've experienced, how, how did they cope? How did they get this far without actually naming it and digging into it? Well, that's kind of a loaded question, but... That's why I get the big bucks. Yeah. I ask a lot of questions. Um, when you start to look into the i guess the background of neurodivergency there's the topic of nature versus nurture that comes up and it seems to be fact that it's actually both that play into it and the way you have to look a little bit at your lineage um at your parents and they had no idea generations previous to you that wasn't even on the radar right and i feel like when i was in elementary school that's when it became more of a buzzing topic, which would have been in the, I guess, early 2000s, maybe a little bit of awareness before then. But ADHD, for example, was that buzzing boy that couldn't sit still and was throwing things around and couldn't stop talking. Right. And that was it. Yeah. Case closed. Yeah. So this hyperactive kid that wouldn't listen to the teacher and was jumping up and down his desk, that was ADHD. That was it. Right. Meanwhile, there's other males, and then so many females that are struggling inside, and because it doesn't present itself on the outside, they're just suffering, and they're learning to cope, and they adapt, and they, they do this thing called masking, and you just, you learn to mimic what other people are doing, and that's how society wants you to be, and so you just do that. Mm. Meanwhile, on the inside, you're constantly battling yourself. And anxiety makes you show up and do well because you're, you're scared of failing. But it's friggin' hard. <laughs> okay, so, oh God, so many things. I want to go backwards. I want to go forwards. Okay, um, I want to ask about masking. But before I do, you and I have talked about neurodivergency. Can, can you explain it in whatever terms you want? Your terms, what you've read, what you've heard. What, what are we talking about when we say a neurodivergent brain? What does that mean? Basically, the divergency is the fact that the brain is different. And so we seem as society to focus on neurodivergency not being the normal. Right. So we say there's neurotypicals and neurodivergence. Okay. And the world has been designed based around a quote-unquote neurotypical brain. Yeah. The neurodivergency aspect is, I don't know, it's an umbrella term for 
anything that is different from the normal, quote unquote, again. And so the, I guess, medical uh, diagnosis or diagnoses would be ADHD, autism, dyslexia, um, bipolar, bipolar. Well, yeah, it, the thing is there's, uh, there's so many comorbid, I guess, diagnoses that happen where they work together and it can be really hard to tell which caused which or what is playing into the other one. Right. Okay. So something else that I wanted to say at the outset is that for the listeners, you, you may be neurotypical and if you are, (laughs) my hope is that you you listen to this and you get some appreciation and awareness for there's people around you in your family, social circles, work network that might not be. And and so to open your eyes and your hearts to, hmm, okay, there's people that operate differently from a cognitive point of view. It's not their choice. And, and what can I do about it? You may also be, and you pointed this out to me, I have a feeling there's going to be listeners here, listeners on this podcast that haven't labeled themselves neurodivergent. They maybe have not had an ADHD diagnosis, yet they are, and this is going to resonate with them. And hopefully you you can be the voice for them, Freddie, on this, on this podcast, um, because that's what I'm hearing and seeing is, is, you know, a 50-year-old female goes, well, yeah, this is me and this is me. And I, all those things that ADHD look like, I have those. Mm-hmm. Yet I didn't get a diagnosis when I was 12 or 15 or 22 or 32. Um, and so what, one of the things you, you just mentioned was masking. So what does that look like? What, bring masking to life for me. How do, how, what would be an example of someone masking? Masking, um, it's I guess the act of, of putting on an act really, um, where you, you're trying to show up in society even though it doesn't feel authentic to yourself because otherwise you don't have a job you fail in school you don't have any friends you did you mask yes how young do you think you were when you started masking young very young like preteen oh yes childhood absolutely and so what happens is as you're as you're growing as a child you end up in situations where you're either comfortable or uncomfortable so many of those situations you can't avoid and so you either have to disengage which sometimes isn't an option or you have to force yourself to be in those situations like school you can't you can't choose to to not be in school. You have to participate. Mm-hmm. And to make friends, you have to push yourself. And so anxiety then forces you to to show up. And then you end up learning, not because it feels innate to you, but you learn from other people what you're supposed to do in these situations. And so it, it's exhausting because you you go out into the world and for some people it, it just feels like going out into the world and for other people it it's a lot of mental work and you come home and you end up sometimes in shambles and just exhausted and super emotional because you've been working twice as hard or three times as hard all day long just trying to be quote-unquote normal mm. when it doesn't feel normal 
I don't know that I've ever heard you say it that way. Uh, and what there's so much going through my mind. And 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 I've gotten over in the last couple of years the what did your mother and I do wrong? Because we always want to make it about ourselves. I want to touch on that, but. What popped into my mind is the people like the Robin Williams of the world that, mm-hmm. that are super talented and that they seem to bring joy and fun and energy. They show up for us and then one day they can't take it. And, you know, it ends in a different way than probably everyone would want. And so it's such an important topic. Uh, you know, are you comfortable if I present the case of from the outside looking in? what you probably looked like to, to other people Absolutely. in our community. Yeah. So, you know, Freddie came from what appeared to be a pretty stable home, mm-hmm. you know, a loving environment. Um, a mother who's a probably the best school teacher in the world, I would say. Like she, Megan's a world-class educator, passionate about it, uh, and, and brought that into the home. I mean, she was like, yeah, I don't know. Our kids are going to read. Reading's important. And, you know, uh, we're not going to have an Xbox right away just because everyone, I remember the day I, Microsoft gave me one, I brought it home. That wasn't, <laughs> that didn't go over great, but okay. So, so Freddie's a January baby. So she's tall, you know, good looking kid, great athlete, great student, polite. Everyone's other parents. Oh, your kid's so polite. So it's like, Hey, look at us. We hit the jackpot. And, um, you got good grades in school. You scored goals in soccer and people liked you. It's like pretty damn great. So for your mom and I, I mean, really our first, I guess, symptom that we saw was, was just this behavior, noticing you picking at your skin on your face. And that was the first thing that, and you know, we probably chalked it up to, well, you know, she's preteen and getting nervous about things. And, you know, after it continued, I think we reached out to a family friend who was a therapist saying, hey, you know, and then we pretty quickly got you into like a counselor. I think it was a psychologist facility. Right. Oh, yeah, I guess. It, right. Yeah, there was first a counselor. Yeah. But then what was that? What was that experience like for you? It was very foreign and also quite a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I early teens yeah very early teens um but that led to a pretty quick diagnosis at the time with an anxiety disorder at the age of i don't know 13 maybe if that yeah 12 12 or 13 13, when i nobody else around me had that label right i i nobody in my friend circle Nobody was talking about that kind of stuff then. Right. So. So it fed the anxiety. <laughs> I was going to say, so was there a sense of relief that, oh, I'm feeling something and, and my parents have acknowledged it or it sounds like more like, okay, now there's being attention drawn to me. No one else is doing this. What? At that point, I didn't feel relief because it didn't explain why anything was happening. It was just a label that actually added more anxiety but it didn't answer any questions because there's something wrong with you right and nobody really had the answer and so we ended up trying cognitive behavioral therapy to try to curb that uh, symptom and it didn't really 
solve any problems. In the meantime, I had growing depression at the same time. And they just fed each other the anxiety and the depression. And everything became harder, it felt like. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was beating myself up because I did not understand coming from the home that I did and succeeding on paper the way everyone seems to think I'm succeeding and I feel miserable on the inside and so misunderstood and I can't figure out how to help myself, let alone get other people to help me. It was, it was horrible. (laughs) So uh, we've, we tried medication for Mm -hmm. treating depression, anxiety. It didn't solve any problems either. Tried different Uh, counseling, different therapies, nothing really took, I would say, to to get me to a place where I understood myself any better or really felt like I was improving in any way. Mm -hmm. And that's coming with the regular growing up teenager feelings and struggles at the same time. So it, it wasn't until much later, only a few years ago now, where... And I, I think um, maybe psychology advanced since when I first got diagnosed with anxiety in that, I don't know, 10, 15 year span. But I started paying attention to, like I started doing more research on my own about what could be going on because nobody around me really figured it out. And it turns out that I had symptoms of inattentive ADHD. And all of a sudden lights were going off. And all of these things that I just thought were so hard and that I was so different, they they had an answer to. And I could understand why I was feeling the way it was for the first time in my life. So that, just hearing you talk about it, Freddie, it sounds like that was a relief. That was like a, a bit of a lifeline. That was the first significant lifeline I felt in my life, probably. Yeah. So, I mean, for the listeners, if... If you have loved ones that are experiencing, and you do, I know, I know everybody does, that they're experiencing anxiety, depression, ADHD. Um, you know, I can share with you that you got, you're going to go through the, what did we do wrong, and you know, some guilt and shame, and then embarrassment, and then you're just frantically wanting to help, and you don't know how to help. Um, and, and we're going to get on to talking about, you know, how how this neurodivergency manifests in the workplace and what we can do. But I think this background is, is important for people. Um, so, you know, I'm your dad, I'm a coach, I'm a believer in people can do better. So I see you struggling, you're tired, you're depressed. So I say, just go for a run, just go for a workout. You'll feel better. And, and you know, that's the science says that mm-hmm. when you hear that, when you heard that, what does it do to you? Because it didn't help you. No, it uh, it had a it had a backhanded effect where it made me wanted to do it less, not in a defiant way, but I just ended up feeling worse about myself and less inclined to do so. Um, okay, so it actually didn't help you; it made you feel worse. Um, I know that going for a run would make me feel better. Would on the surface, yeah, but it wasn't the it still didn't answer my my root problem at any point, and 
then I would enter this vicious cycle of feeling guilty for not doing it mm-hmm. and then less motivation to do it and then feeling more guilty. Yeah. Knowing what we both know now, if we could rewind the tape, what what does better look like? What What do I or your mother say or do that's more supportive, helpful in that time? I think help, effective help, isn't offering advice or opinions, especially if it isn't asked for, but actually asking more questions or doing more listening or Mm. just validating feelings and experience. Mm. Because ultimately, the person experiencing the struggle is the only one that can get them out of it. Yeah. And a supportive environment that limits shame and guilt and failure mm. or this idea of it that, that the struggling person is experiencing, ultimately that will be much more helpful than, than these lifelines of advice. Even right. if they come from the best intention, they have the opposite effect. Right. So it still feels like a should, you should do, and the person shooting you actually has no real understanding of where you're at, what you're experiencing. So, Hey kiddo, what's happening for you? What are you feeling? What do you like? Just coming from a place of curiosity and, and teach me, tell me what's happening and how I can support you. Creating an environment where the struggling person doesn't have to feel any shame or guilt or embarrassment because they can't, do these things they can't go for the run they can't clean their room they can't eat the healthier food they can't eat at all they're eating too much there's so much disappointment involved like personal disappointment but also fear of disappointing other people mm. and so they i mean it all just feeds each other but just creating that that safe environment that there that limits the the guilt and the shame involved have I told you yet how proud of you I am today? <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, okay, so let's fast forward the tape, and we can go back. I, I just, you know, we don't have a script here. I just know that this is helpful, uh, believe that this is helpful for the listeners. So we'll fast forward into you're an adult, you're in a working environment, you've got talent, you've got skills, there's no question, you're wildly creative. Um, all the photos on my website you took, you were instrumental in the design and layout of my website. Um, and we've we've done work together in the past. And we've talked about this sort of off here, but, but there's this frustration dynamic between us working together that is more complex because we're family and there's a parental and a, you know, a child piece here. But what I want to do is, is speak from the point of view of, okay, there's someone on my team or an employee or someone I'm working with that they're, the way they operate is, is, is frustrating and it's not working. And, and so I'll give you an example is, you know, I send you something or there's something you say you're going to do and, oh, can I have it by Tuesday? And then Tuesday comes and goes and it doesn't happen. And then I send you a note and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then something doesn't happen. And then so my frustration comes up and it's like, so now my tone is like, you know, anxious and maybe snippy. And the story I tell myself is she doesn't give a shit. She's in her own world. She's lazy. She's not responsible. (laughs) 
and it's easier to do probably easier to fall into that when it's your kid but you could be you could be a non-related to me and an employee with the same neurodivergent makeup and and it would be a very similar pattern so i know differently now i know that there was stuff what's easy to say is just get it done well, just just do it just prioritize it, freddie and do it what what happens what's happening on your side or and you're speaking on behalf of the people that that have some of this adhd what's happening when there's a deliverable or an expectation that someone has put on you and you didn't deliver or you're in the middle like what's what's happening well it's it isn't a short answer it's a combination of a handful of things that are taking place simultaneously so because of the wiring of i'll use my brain as an example um if there isn't a super clear hard deadline if it's a little bit loosey-goosey open-ended that's going to be a problem so like get it to me at the end of the week by the end of the week that's a little loosey-goosey way too loose okay and so why is it a problem sorry it's a problem because the way i perceive time it's now or it's later okay there isn't an in-between so can you do it right now now's great yeah now's great or a hard timeline but if it's anything in between it will be procrastinated and avoided because i can only work under pressure hmm. so so knowing that a client or my dad who i'm working with or a friend or whatever there's something i said i'd do for them sometime in the short term that doesn't create enough pressure for your brain to take action i need an external pressure an external reward system so basically one of the the, the main things that affects an adhd brain is we cannot produce enough dopamine on our own okay and so we look for things that shock our system so it has to be something novel something pressurized exciting or new mm-hmm. i guess and if it's none of those things then that's where all of our sticky faults come into play so we avoid it if it's not interesting or hard enough like complicated enough our brain just literally doesn't want to do it mm-hmm. if and we get stuck in this system the other the other really key component is object permanence and so out of sight out of mind if it's not something that's staring me in the face yeah i'm not i'm not ignoring it on purpose i it's not even on my radar so so it's it's not even in the back of your mind that hey i got to get to this it might be a little bit but it could easily just not be until i actually see something relevant to it or something reminds me of it that's when it'll come up and so as someone with ADHD, if you don't have things visually in your face that mm-hmm. you need to prioritize, then that's when stuff slips through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like? Like, what do you experience when it is slipping through the cracks and maybe you get a reminder or you, you remember that it's slipping through the cracks? What is there a compounding effect that, you know, feeling bad or guilt or pressure or yeah. Yes, definitely. To all of those. To all, all of the above. Okay. Um, the other thing is if 
instruction and expectations aren't super clear, but also concise, I will spend way too much time just trying to figure out what I'm trying to do. Right. Okay. And get lost in that. Okay. So let's, let's, this is helpful. I mean, practically it's helpful for me and, and I think globally, it'll, I think it'll be helpful for the listeners, but okay, let's say, cause you and I have an intention to do a photo shoot coming up pretty soon here. Um, in the past, you know, we, we go out, that part's easy. Like you're wildly talented as a photographer. Uh, we haven't, we found our way to work together. It's not weird or awkward. And even though for me, it's still like posing in front of a camera for my daughter does feel a bit weird, but I understand how it's connected to my brand and the work I do. So we do a shoot and I've got, you know, my, my uh, team at a live creative. And so they're waiting for the photos and I say, Hey, can, can you get me some edits later this week? So what I'm hearing is the upgrade is Freddie great shoot. Is it, is it me saying when can we, or is it me saying next Tuesday by noon, I need three or seven, like be as specific as possible with a time and date. Yeah. Because we, the thing is I never show up and, and do something that I never just mail anything in. I want to do my, I want it to be perfect. I want it to be the very best. And that takes time. And time blindness is a massive component to ADHD, this this concept of it's now or it's later. And so I get lost and I get stuck when I don't know the parameters strict enough. Yeah. And I appreciate you're saying you, and I know it's not just you. There's, no. there's a lot of people, but, but I, I remember watching you go through university and, and that wasn't a good fit for you because of, even though you're very smart and naturally curious, the whole prepping for an exam thing, I would watch you kind of start late and then go deep into the night four or five in the morning. Cause you wanted to understand it all, get it all done. And then you'd wake up a few hours later after almost no sleep Mm -hmm. and have to perform answering an exam and your brain clearly wasn't in a a place to do that. So it's interesting because I, you know, I was coming from a place of, well, you know, let's not put too much pressure on her. Let's keep it open and vague, but that actually makes it worse. So the more, you know, the, the blueprint is if you're working with someone that's struggling with, you know, ADHD is to be really clear on expectations, time, deadline the importance of it right and it's this balance between really clear strong instruction and expectation without micromanaging because if I have eyes on me too closely too involved I will shut down yeah yeah it's reminding me, and I know you and I have talked about this, the scarf model. Mm-hmm. You were asking me, hey, have you ever done a podcast on the whole scarf model? And, and I don't think I have, but it comes up in the work that I do. And this is, you know, this is David Rock's work around um, social threats and social rewards. And, you know, um, the the C and the A in the scarf, so it's an acronym. The C is for certainty, mm-hmm. meaning give me, a, tell me the rules of the game. Tell me the parameters. Right. So give me enough information that I know what the target is. Mm -hmm. And then the A is around autonomy. Mm -hmm. So it's this finding the balance with people you work with to say, okay, 
here, here's here's the you know the field goal or the, or the sidelines and, and, and what scoring looks like to use sports analogy and then here's the ball and you go and run with it correct and and so it's that honoring both um, and I think it's really important that people I mean even without talking about neurodivergency when I talk to people about delegation in the workplace mm-hmm. that's the ideal model get to know who's on your team how much information clarity certainty that they need to feel prepared and comfortable to take action and then how much autonomy do they prefer so they don't feel micromanaged and they feel like they can you know add their own um, influence on it so in the workplace oh i I know what i was going to ask you there's a lot of people in my generation and maybe younger so i'd say you know people 40s to 60s that say these kids today everybody's depressed, anxious, ADHD. They just don't want to work. We, we didn't have a choice. We just worked, right? The old, you know, we had a tougher. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I know they're just not working me? Like, how do I? You've heard it, mm-hmm. right? You felt it. I know we're going to do a podcast soon about generations in the workplace, but what's the answer to that kind of mindset because I do I think some people are purely ignorant but I think there's some people that are wondering some people in you know my generation that are going like "Eh, I think they're just a bit soft like just that they don't want to work and I'm just going to put an asterisk here you're one of the hardest workers I know like when you get a hold of something you do it Mm -hmm. and you do it right I don't care if it's cooking a meal if it's cleaning something painting something you go deep and you go so it's not laziness no. But what? how do we get the attention of the, or shift the thinking for, for you know, my cohort that's, that's, that's dubious, that's doubtful, that's not really buying all this? Buying mental health labels or? Yeah, yeah. That perceive it as a, there's just, just an excuse. That right. They, they don't want to work. They don't want to be held accountable. Everybody wants a trophy. It's kind of getting lumped into that. You and I both know that's not true but is there something that we could share here to get their attention or to help them see that well i know the question circulates is it just that people are paying more attention to mental health now or does more mental health problems do more of them exist in this day and age and i think it's both um my generation and the sub generations from that were growing up in a really knowledge heavy world where so much information is readily accessible we cannot turn it off from the moment you wake up to the moment you shut your eyes we are taking in knowledge Mm. from all over the world from communications within your friends and family circles it's just Info, info, info. And reality of life is really, really hard. Mm. And it always has been. Life is hard. Life is challenging. People are constantly doing hard things. This is the first generation where there was no off switch. I, I kind of straddle the generation that didn't grow up fully tech savvy as a i'm i think the last year of a millennial and then i guess what is it gen z yep below me but but a true gen z they they grew up fully 
tech savvy. They're, they're all digital all the time. <laughs> all digital all the time. And that alone for body image stuff, for just the stress of the world, it's all in your face the entire time. So the expectations are so impossible. No wonder everybody is so stressed and anxious and tired and and maybe burning out, which appears as, as lazy. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a little bit of grace for that. It also doesn't mean that being depressed or anxious or having ADHD or autism or dyslexia meaning means that you can't show up in the workplace and be an effective member of society. Right. It's just an understanding that that is part of the equation for that person. Yeah. You're not It's asking, not a doom la- label. Right. You're not asking to not be accountable. No. Right. Okay. And I think where we're at in society, it can be much more flexible and accommodating. COVID proved that. You can work from home. You can work different hours than you normally would. You can work a little bit at night or early in the morning and still get the same amount of work done. Yeah. Systems have to evolve. That's how they always have. So what's popping in my mind now, so I mentioned that I, I and you and I have had conversations like this, like I, I think you're in a way lucky that you, I know you don't feel lucky, but, but from the point of view of, you know, at 27 years old, you're already, you've learned so much about your hardwiring, your brain, um, where it comes from, what to do about it, how it manifests. So I, I feel like you're way ahead of the curve. What would you say to, you know, a 45 year old who has feelings like this, they didn't, they weren't able to label it because the generation they grew up in or the family or the corporate culture or whatever. But this is resonating with them. They're like, oh, you know, I have, I struggle with deadlines and I need this. And what, what would you say to them? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but it's partly what I do. (laughs) What would you say to them? What advice guidance would you give them to to start to a understand themselves better and get their voice heard in in the workplace or or even in the family domain well this topic of boundaries comes up because i i grew up having to show up against what felt natural to me a lot of the time this this topic of masking Mm -hmm. and so i i grew up not knowing how to put up a boundary because it didn't seem like there was an option to to go against what what the the norm was and so being able to understand why certain aspects of a job or just being a human in society feels hard sometimes there are ways that you can put up a boundary and and accommodate things differently. So like we suspected, Freddie, um, there's, (laughs) there's so much here, uh, that we could talk about and we want to keep talking about it. And, uh, I'm also mindful that, that my listeners are used to consuming a certain size podcast. So, um, we're going to turn this into a, a two part, (laughs) maybe more, but I think a two part to start. Uh, Yes. So, uh, 
I hope this was helpful. Uh, I have a feeling it, it will be. And um, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Freddie, for, for being here. Uh, please um, come back. We're going to launch part two in, in two weeks. Uh, so come back and tune in and, and we'll add some more to this. The Real Leadership Podcast is produced by Chris Obst Leadership and Alive Creative Services. Thank you for listening.